One of the worst affected areas is King Lake, a 30 to 40 minute drive east of Wallen where AM is broadcasting from this morning. Roads in and out of the area have been largely closed. It came on that fast. People are talking about 15, they had 15 minutes between when they saw it over in, in, the, in the far distance, 25 kilometres away before it hit. So a lot of people jumped in the car at the last minute, not realising, of course, it was the last minute by the time they were on the road. The two other fires are out of control. There's one just north of Melbourne at, uh, up near King Lake. The uh, situation is uh, not quite clear to us yet, but... Uh, After the fires, I became aware of how precious this landscape is. And I had tried to paint it before, but it wasn't landscape painting I needed to do. I needed to paint the flowers. Carbon black, made by burning wood or charring. Bone white, made by burning bones using the white ash. Cerulean blue, from the Latin for sky or heavens, based on cobalt. Wednesday, June the 29th. Someone told me about this state of agitation that comes on when you're starting something creative, and it actually has a name, divine perturbation. It's actually a scientific term, and it's the agitation that occurs when something is gathering its energy, ready to start something new. I'm in a state of divine perturbation, or I was yesterday. And today, the images are starting to make themselves visible in, in my mind's eye. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. I think all this area of the garden here with these curving flower beds and pathways, that's, that's all the Edna Walling traces left behind. And I don't know a lot more about her impact, but I do remember my half-sister telling me recently that she came here in gumboots and stomped around the garden in a very bossy way. <laughs> so, just, I'm sure she left her mark. For me, through like early childhood, my mother would take my hand and walk me around this garden bed here, and I can actually remember her picking some of these forget-me-nots and telling me what they were. And you know, I would have that connection from very young, you know, of knowing all the flowers that were in bloom and of course it changes all year round so there was always something new to be looking at and her love of the garden was, you know, that, that was embedded in me from very young. We always lived here so the sense of home never shifted for me, that was very much tied to this place. Flower, le fleur. Beautiful flowers, le beau fleur. Little flowers, le petit fleur. Little buds, le petit bouton. When I first interviewed painter Christine Johnson several years ago, we struck a chord. 
We didn't speak again for half a decade. But from her gallery mail-outs, I cut out the images of oversized roses, the opening velvety camellias, and stuck them to my office wall. And she, unbeknownst to me, listened to my radio programs, all the while painting these rich, exotic flowers. And then, one day, we spoke again. Christine was changing direction. She was tapping into a new inspiration. Did I want to map her journey? Cobalts. Cobalt was named after kobolds, the bohemian word for spirits or ghosts, which the pigment miners believed inhabited the mineral and caused them difficulties. Thursday, June 30th. Well, I'm getting started again on this new body of work. And yesterday I was just in the most incredible state of agitation. I've done all the cleaning that you can do in the house. And I've even made a shoe rack, which and goes up to the ceiling. Then I thought I'd better start work. And so I stretched up a canvas and I kept going on. from one end of the house to the really other. without any idea about what I had in my this mind. This is really because I'm getting started. The ideas are starting, starting to move for this new show. A small mud-brick room overlooks a garden of slender gum trees with many little flowers in pots. Over the back fence, the hazy hills of Kinglake, so regularly ravaged by fire, are a constant reminder of the vulnerability of the Australian bush. In this modest space, Christine paints boldly. She prepares the canvas with a background first, overlays bright flowers in glaring colours. And then, slowly, the flowers retreat, as if seen through mist, paradoxically revealing their true nature. This is quite a large painting that I'm working on. A very, very tiny flower called the pink Gishinoshia. The flower was named after a young man called Antoine Gishinot, and he was on Baudin's voyage. And I'd only found this out after I found the flowers. And I just loved this tiny little delicate flower. They're about the size of your small fingernail. When I paint them, I paint them very large so that you can immerse yourself in them and you're absorbed into the painting. I feel an indescribable ecstasy and delirium in melting, as it were, into the system of beings in identifying myself with the whole of nature, writes Jean-Jacques Rousseau, French philosopher of the 18th century. I was really working with a fantastic flow when I started on this, and there's a, a charcoal drawing just behind us, which looks like a, a kid's scribble. But when I was doing this, I was finding out the flow of how the picture should fit together, and I thought I really, really had it, until... I got to this nearly finished stage and felt like I had too much dark shadow in this bottom area here. So I've just yesterday been putting in a whole lot of new foliage into the foreground and I wanted to keep that same flow going. So when I'm working, I tend to start out with very, very bright colour and then the process is multi-layered so that I'll bring glaze after glaze after glaze. That's like thin washes of translucent colour. So you end up with this very modulated, subtle tonal surface. I'm using really fat brushes 
and I actually dabbed the paint on with these very big brushes and they're house painting brushes. <laughs> it's about three inches wide, two inches wide, this brush. They're just cheap and nasty brushes and I do get through them. They don't last a long time, but they give me exactly the kind of mark that I want. For Victoria, yesterday began with a thick dust haze, a northerly wind, and a temperature which climbed rapidly to 43 degrees. Another major fire, which is still burning unchecked, is heading towards the catchment area for the Upper Yarra Dam. The highest February reading in recorded history. The catchment is still regenerating itself after the 1939 fires. With the state tinder dry as a result of the drought, the expectations of serious fire were high. So far, 10,000 hectares have been lost. However, winds have pushed the fire away. It was just the beginning. The Dandenongs have subsequently become a disaster area. Cinnabar. This natural ore was a popular source for a red-orange opaque pigment, also known as vermilion. Unfortunately, it is highly toxic. Cornflower blue. A blue dye made from the petals of the flower and which was used by some watercolorists in the 18th century. Sometimes the starting point for an image is a very slight thing, you know, where you just like it, you know, it's beautiful. I saw the blue Leshenolthias and I just fell in love with that cornflower blue. And then, of course, I read the backstory behind the name of the flowers and loved how all the flowers have names that actually tell our history as well. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. The Blue Leshenaltier, a French name for a delicate Australian flower painted in a studio in 2011. As it turns out, it was the little ones more than the showy grevilleas and bottle brushes which were chosen in the late 1700s for the long sea voyages from the Great South Land to Europe. Christine burns with a sense of discovery. For her, these Australian flowers as an artistic subject are entirely new. She feels like the explorers and artists might have felt when first adjusting their French eyes to notice, then illustrate the tiny blooms which scatter the West Australian coastline. She tracks down original prints at the State Library of Victoria with Des Cowley from the Rare Books Collection and he shows her the volumes which were a result of the dramatic rise in natural history publishing in the late 18th century. Well, where we sort of really get the big shift is around the time of the voyages of Captain Cook, who's familiar to everyone, and this was the rise of the notion of taking along scientists, taking along artists, and starting to really collect uh, specimens, flora, fauna, everything about these new lands. And Cook's three voyages were monumental in their scope. It really was a great shift. And you started to get the rise then of this deluxe publishing, these, these 
enormous set of atlases full of beautifully engraved plates, often hand-coloured in multi-volumes. And that began around about the 1760s, 1770s, and runs right through to almost about the 1850s period, when we tend to see sort of the end of that great era uh, of exploration. Cook's voyages did produce quite significant publications put out by the Admiralty, but what you tended to find then is that once the British had made the decision to settle in New South Wales, a convict settlement, their interests, you know, steered away from that scientific end. They were more interested then in, in what they could actually, you know, do with these new lands. And what you started to get was the rise, in particular in France, of these incredible kind of French voyages from explorers La Perouse, D'Entrecasteaux, Baudin, that go right through this period up into the 1830s and 1840s. And France in particular put large amounts of government money into publishing these multi-volumes. Sunday, July the 3rd. I'm just thinking that this is helping me realise that when I start a painting, I'm actually really starting with a feeling. I think I'm looking at the subject, and then I discover that really it's drawing a feeling out of me that I want to explore and develop. And so with the blue Leshenaltia, this really strong feeling of immersion, almost like diving into a beautiful blue swimming pool, the painting should be refreshing. I'd like to paint that. So these remarkable botanical books we're holding were part of Napoleon's imperial project to prove French intellectual superiority at the turn of the 19th century. And he gave them as gifts to heads of state, to libraries and wealthy patrons, as a sign of the grandeur of France. His wife, Josephine, was a keen gardener at their country house, Malmaison, where she nurtured many Australian natives in her greenhouse, with kangaroos and emus wandering the grounds. And Pierre-Joseph Redoute, now well known for his paintings of roses, but his role in documenting Australian plants quite unknown, was her chief artist. Garden of Roses Le Jardin des Roses Les Roses Le Petit Fleur de la Nouvelle Hollandaise Au Jardin de la Malmaison I think seeing Redoute's rendering of these flowers, sometimes that they're only about a centimetre in diameter, he examined them with such attention and managed to render their fragility and their fineness. And yet we know that they're really robust flowers that survive in a, a big, powerful landscape with extreme weather conditions. They're flowers also that haven't been cultivated. They're flowers that have evolved over thousands and thousands of years. I was thinking a little about how he's impacted on me and I've got that book, Les Roses. Have you ever seen that? This is quite a new edition of it. But when I was growing up, we had a really old edition of this at home. And so I would have, as a very young child, poured over this book and looked at Redoute's exquisite illustrations of flowers. Well, Redoute 
we accept as, as just the greatest botanical artist of, of his period. And he must have been an extraordinary character because he taught painting and drawing to Antoinette prior to the revolution and at the same time he managed to ingratiate himself with Josephine and become, I guess, the, the official artist of the Napoleonic period. His works are really incredibly beautiful and striking and, and you know, many listeners will of course know the series La Rose, I mean, we see them on catalogues all the time. And his pure formal beauty that you find in his work is really quite stunning. And of course he does link to Australia then because as these plants would come back from these French voyages, would be given on to someone like Redoute and the artists that followed him. We have many sort of engravings by Redoute of Australian plants and then of course he was commissioned by Josephine to document all of the plants at Malmaison and of course many Australian plants brought back and cultivated there will turn up in that wonderful work as well. Jean-Jacques Rousseau gave philosophical voice to these botanical passions when he wrote, Fresh shades, streams, woods... Verdure, come purify my imagination. My soul, dead to all strong emotions, can be affected now only by sensory objects, and it's only through them that pleasure and pain can reach me. And these writings are not only sympathetic to Christine's philosophical approach today, but influenced Josephine and Redoute 200 years ago, says French scholar Sylvia Sagona. The philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau foregrounded the importance of nature and of the influence of nature on man. Rousseau was sort of famously have felt that when he was standing in, in front of a stream, a torrent of water, he lost all sense of past and present and existed just as he was. And so this was this idea that man's feelings are much more important and his empathy with nature is more important than this sort of intellectual process which had been the age of the Enlightenment. So Rousseau becomes very interested in botany and this is going to be taken up uh, at the end of the 18th century. There's, it's also a time of blossoming of the sciences. People were interested in Linnaeus's uh, taxonomy of plants. And, of course, it's a time of, of discovery also of the different parts of the world. And people were fascinated by this new flora and fauna which were being brought back and their classification. So uh, Josephine um, has two interests, I suppose. She's very interested in the English garden, which is something which is going to evolve out of this interest in Rousseau, the idea of nature being allowed to take its own way, I suppose, as opposed to the French garden, which is completely dominated by man's mind and, and by structure and by symmetry. But she was also very interested in the sort of cutting-edge nature of botany, but what she does also, which is quite significant, is that these um, Australian flowers and, and fauna that she actually manages to cultivate, she then sends out throughout France. And and that is why, if you actually go to the Côte d'Azur nowadays, you'll see um, Australian eucalypts and you'll see the mimosa, what they call the mimosa, which, of course, is now seen as their sort of symbol of Nice, where in actual fact these were planted from these wattles which had been brought back from the uh, Entrecasteau and the Bourdain voyage. Viridian green was discovered in the time of Napoleon by the French chemist Vauquelin. A very stable, powerful cold green, it possessed excellent permanence and lack of toxicity. So this is the Jardin de la Malmaison. 
and all of the kind of hand-coloured uh, engravings are by Redoute. So this is one of Redoute's great, great works. Makes them visible for the first time, that's what I think, because you have to walk right up to a plant to see it, because some of these blooms, the smallest one we saw was about two millimetres wide. So these illustrations make them visible to the eye, and I think that 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 sort of gets your attention, doesn't it? And in, in extreme detail as well, yeah. because as in great botanical art, there's this kind of breaking up of all the elements of the plant, which mm -hmm. we often find on the bottom of the image, took incredible, incredible detail, which must have just taken both a great scientific and botanical understanding of the plant, which is why artists often worked with botanists who would provide that information, but a great kind of eye for just this immense detail, which is then magnified for the viewer. These were all well-trained artists, and so what you'd have generally on a voyage, you would have a, a botanical artist, and they would have to work very, very quickly under very difficult conditions. You know, I mean, we have accounts where they may land on shore for less than an hour, and they might have to make 20, 30, 40 sketches in very quick time, and they may have no other opportunity to see those plants again and take cuttings. They often had systems whereby they could work it up into a colour drawing later, and an artist, Ferdinand Bauer, who was with Matthew Flinders, Bauer used colour charts, which are, are quite extraordinary. On some of his drawings made with flinders, the numbers uh, run up to 999 with letters. So we know he had over a 1,000 colours in his colour chart. And he would number his drawing. And that allowed incredible accuracy at a later stage to be able to capture exactly what he saw at the time. Now, in Bauer's case, he didn't have the entrepreneurial spirit that we find with someone like Redoute. And the terrible sad fact is we know that he could only find 23 subscribers to this work, probably the finest botanical work ever published in relationship to Australia. So after publishing only 15 plates, he abandoned the project. And, and originally he had ambitiously seen this as a project that would go for many years and run into some hundreds of plates because he'd, he'd taken thousands of drawings, made hundreds and hundreds of watercolours, you know, finished back in London. But in the end, only created these 15 really beautiful plates. And that is that beautiful way that the eye can attempt to, to capture a plant in a way that, say, a single photograph may not, because they're really trying to actually look at many angles of the plant, in a sense, and recreate, in a sense, the perfect specimen as well that represents that plant. So it's, it's, not, it's an ideal image which stands in then for all of the descriptive factors that a botanist might come up with. Whereas if we take a single photograph, it's a single photograph of one plant at that moment that we captured it in a kind of flat dimension. Monday, July the 4th. I've decided that the only way to figure this one out is to do a big drawing the same scale as the canvas. So I've just um, been putting some paper up on the canvas and just some scrap paper to do a large charcoal drawing and it's the only way I can really see it because sometimes things look alright when they're small but when you paint them up large they just look wrong so that's what I'm doing now. I wanted to get a flow going across this painting from sort of bottom left to upper right so it's sort of got a big whoosh right across it going back to the Turkish arabesques. That's really the flow that I want. I mean those images, those Stylized patterns were derived from plant forms and in a way I'm going right back to the plant forms to to find that flow. 
Someone's just at the door. I've got to go. Sienna. Burnt sienna. A native clay containing iron and manganese. In the raw state, it has the appearance of dark and rich yellow ochre. Burnt sienna is made by calcining or roasting the raw sienna in a furnace. The two, raw and burnt siennas, are amongst the most stable pigments on the palate. Two tiny flowers, a blue and a pink, turn out to be named for two young men who might as well be forgotten figures, but are remembered in the naming of the blooms. Jean-Baptiste Lechenol de la Tour. He was part of the expedition that came to Australia on Baudin's voyage. And so they landed in Western Australia and collected flowers there in our early 1800s, probably 1801, 1802. So this blue flower has been named after him. And he was helped by Antoine Guichenot, who this painting that we've been talking about, that flower's been named after his assistant, Antoine, the gardener's boy, who probably was only 15 or 16, you know, just a young kid scrambling about helping this young fellow. And he apparently wasn't very well educated, but he did most of the collecting and caring for the plants. And his notes, he's apparently quite illiterate, but he made all these notes which were really useful eventually. So I thought a lot about him when I was painting, you know, that they named a flower after him that is so, it's so delicate and, oh, just something so tender about it. And I just love that those expeditions, they were full of botanists, scientists, artists, probably very refined gentlemen who went on this very rugged trip for the sake of culture. So different from starting a penal colony and at this very same time, you know, on the other side of the country. That history is written into the names of all these flowers. The depiction of flowers in Australia soon expanded in more interpretive directions. A group of friends, better known for their dramatic landscapes, were also painting flowers in the late 19th century. Hans Heysen, his daughter Nora Heysen, Tom Roberts and Arthur Streeton all revered and reinterpreted the Dutch tradition of the 17th century, of still life in a domestic setting. And in Australia, these remained mostly exotic flowers. Their sense of light and shade and of the metaphysical aspects of flowers resonates through a century with Christine's own thinking. This is art critic and writer Laura Murray-Cree. Really, Australia's wildflowers might have been appreciated by botanists, but they weren't really generally appreciated. And what people wanted to do, mostly from the UK, of course, was to establish cottage gardens with flowers from home. And these were thought of as civilising influence, I suppose you could say. They were more interested in how the light fell on the flowers and how the flowers were set against usually dark backgrounds. And they thought of flowers as exemplifying truth and beauty and the feminine in nature and in art in a camouflaged way and, and often present them with a female form, you know, so that flowers would be placed near a nude female figure, for instance. 
there was always a sense of flowers having fleeting lives, but especially cut flowers, so they had allegorical and symbolic meaning. There was always a sense of presenting them, yes, in the domestic environment, which could be warm and secure, but also with the idea that, well, uh, flowers are fleeting, life is fleeting. they almost parables of light and dark and of life and death as well. Van Dyke Brown, known also as Castle Earth, Rubens Brown and Cologne Brown, this transparent brown pigment dates from the 17th century. Its transparency made it superior to umbers and ochres for glazing, although it was prone to fading and, because of its bitumen component, to cracking. There's no getting around the way flowers were seen by the male painterly eye as deeply symbolic of the mystery and the sensuality of women. Arthur Streeton wrote of the exquisite beauty of a La France bud slowly unfolding its precious garments as you look at it, the firm, filmy whiteness of a British queen bud. The rose is difficult to paint. It simply will not yield its subtlety to flashy strokes of the brush. All that stroking, yielding and floral strip-teasing, strangely anthropocentric and objectifying of women at the same time. And yet it's hard not to see the flower as somehow connected with sexuality. I've painted extremely sensual images of flowers that are sexual, I, I would think. And yet I think that as a woman, perhaps, that's so natural that it doesn't have to be the subject of the work. It's not. It, it's, to me, that's creation. I mean, we're in this world, you know, this manifest world where things do procreate and live and die and rot and decay and then they sprout up again. I mean, that is the sexual life of the planet. <laughs> it's big. With roses, for example, they are carrying so much baggage. They're associated with funerals for celebration. You know, they're symbolic of love. And sometimes that's too much. These flowers, the native flowers, are free of that. They create a feeling of liberation in painting them. That's true. I knew that there'd been a big change when I was pulling out different tubes of colour. There was a big shift in the palette. And the colours that I'm working with now are, are quite obscure colours that you wouldn't normally, you know, squeeze out of a tube. Cobalt violet. It's the most incredible colour. You mix it down with white and it becomes this delicate pink that I've used in, in this painting, in the Gishinoshia. And because there's much larger areas of soft, abstracted backgrounds, I can sort of swim through that colour you know, and it's, yeah, it's something very new in the work. Quick now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Wednesday. August the 24th. Well, I can't believe it, but I'm still working on the blue Leshenaltia, and it's used up 
so many weeks of painting now that it's completely thrown my schedule and it's still not finished. I feel so raw and in a way just desperate to finish it, but it's just not there yet. I don't know whether painting is really a friend or foe to me, but I do know that in a way I fight all my demons with my paintbrushes. Now all the shapes really are starting to look like they're dancing together. They actually are relating and this is the stage where the painting looks really horrible because all the colours are overly bright and they're screaming at me. But if I half shut my eyes I can I can I've, I can see this painting. It's nearly it's ready to pop. There is another tradition, and it really began with Margaret Preston between the wars in the 20s and 30s, which was really pitched at a number of things. She was a quite an extraordinary artist and person. She was a journalist and a fighter for women's rights, and she also had a tremendous sense of nationalism, but she really wanted to elevate women's status as painters, particularly those who did paint flowers, so she had a very modernist experimental approach. She flattened out the pattern. Hans Heysen said she denatured flowers and he couldn't understand this approach. Hans Heysen wrote to his friend Lionel Lindsay of Margaret Preston that all sense of subtlety is lacking, all that something which makes nature's objects so fascinating and mysterious. But Preston simply wasn't interested in all that. And while Christine is more metaphysically in tune with Heysen, she shares with Margaret Preston a passion for the native flower being here and now, something of great value. She really was interested in the heroic, nationalistic aspect of wildflowers. So she didn't just do small studies. She also did some very large, almost person-sized paintings of Australian wildflowers as a really important project of nationalism, if you like. She had a lot of different agendas, you'd say today. And she used Australian wildflowers in still life paintings. They became a, a kind of laboratory for her ideas about women's art and about modernism and about Australia's cultural heritage. And she, she literally turned the tables on the whole idea of women's floral art and design being trivial, domestic and even a form of what Anne Elias has termed useless beauty. I think my work really insists that it's not of the domestic tradition. I think when I started painting these, and this is part of the Redoute link really, I looked at Redoute's paintings and I thought I, I'm participating in a tradition here of painting Australian native flowers and I want to take them out of the vase and put them back in the landscape in a way. Egyptian blue fruit is dark blue pigment, calcium copper silicate, arose out of the manufacture of dark blue glass in ancient Egypt. The glass was ground into a deep, permanent blue pigment of great visual beauty. It remained the only dark blue paint colour until the development of ultramarine four millennia later. 
going to Turkey and Egypt really represents a change in my approach to my work. Walking into the Blue Mosque and seeing the light pouring through the stained glass windows in that huge, open, beautiful space. It was like being inside a flower in a way. The luminosity, the mingling of coloured light coming through glass was unforgettable and I just drank in the light. It heightened something inside you and of course stained glass is used in religious buildings for this very reason. And that mysterious mingling of coloured light, I just knew that was what I, I needed to get hold of in my art. I want to draw the viewer in to the experience of looking, into the experience where you merge with what you're looking at, so that you are drawn into nature's beauty, where you, your mind forgets to think and you are just having the experience of being with it. And there's a, an incredible stillness in that, which is like the meditative state. So I think when I'm looking at the flowers, I'm completely absorbed in, in the seeing. But that's, that's the external. There's this boundary that you cross without knowing, where you're not looking at, but you're looking inside and with, and you're immersed. You are even what you're looking at. I choose flowers for that. It's not an accident, and it's not a random choice. It's, it's a deep choice. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are infolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Thickness of bark is really important. This really corky bark on this old man banks here is protected buds from which these shoots can grow. Before the fires, the flowering heads that are here, they would have been closed up. But as the fire passed, the woodiness protected the seed that was in there and after the fire, they'd open up and release the seed. It's primed for germination with the ash bed full of nutrients. To the east, up in the Yarra Ranges and coiled in a curve of the road, a very special public garden called Kawara. Under tall trees, a series of tempting garden beds shows all sorts of options for plantings to inspire gardening dreams of personal native sanctuary. Here, Christine pours over the flowers, walking round with Lindy Harris, Kawara's curator and she chooses one to complete her exhibition. So, so what's in bloom? Ah, oh, lots and lots and lots garden. of things. Yeah, lots of things. Oh, look, I guess you've come at a particularly good time because the, um, the Waratahs are out and we've got a really substantial Waratah collection here. But having said that, you can come here any time and there's things that are in bloom. Actually, I've just noticed up here, what do you call that one? Oh, that that's a little guiche note here, yeah, yeah. metafolia, that I've particular just been one. Painting it. And there's the, the one with the bigger lanterns too, macarantha as well. I've never seen the macarantha. Oh, I'll Is this show the you. Letifolia? That's letifolia. 
Australia's got some of the best blues in flowers world over. They're just the most amazingly intense colours, aren't they? Blue Lechinoltia. But I haven't seen this before growing. San Pieris. No, I haven't seen it. No. I have to decide what I'm going to do. I'm not comfortable with it. I've all these different ideas yeah. going around in my head at the moment. What is it about this one that appeals to you? I like its simplicity. I'm thinking about things which don't relate so much to the plant but the, the show. And what I think the show still needs is perhaps something light and another of these sort of star-like flowers. I'm thinking that way, yeah. The sepals are like a palish green, aren't they? I love the colour of them. It's a grey-green. I mean, when you look at what the, the, as you say, the main part, the flower, mm -hmm. is if you had an eyeglass, you'd mm -hmm. probably see some magic close up. Yeah. But yeah. really... The, I've got a magnifying glass in the car and I can see those tiny, weeny little flowers mm. about two millimetres wide. Mm. I need fresh flowers to work from. So, you know, today I've been able to collect some cuttings, which I'll take home and keep them cool and in the dark until I've worked from them and drawn from them and taken some photographs as well. It's hard to explain, but I couldn't do it from, I don't know, someone else's photograph. There'd been no life force behind the work. So I have to have that direct experience. And actually that makes me think about Redoute painting the flowers at Malmaison as well. They weren't just pressed, dried samples. They were the growing, living flowers. And when you look at any of these little bushes here, there'll be flowers that are just budding up. There'll be leaves that are just unfurling. There'll be flowers at all different stages of blooming and finishing. And the whole circle of life is there. It's an image for that um, incredibly profound process. I've always found it curious why so many Australians still gravitate towards English cottage gardens with their moist green lawns and exotic plantings. They took hold as the colony tried desperately to stay grounded in the old culture, but to me these pretty gardens are spiritually foreign to this place. In Melbourne, such gardens still abound, and Christine Johnson's childhood play space was one designed over half a century ago by Edna Walling in the green belt of East Malvern. With its trickling water feature built by Christine's mother, the garden's tumbling bright little flowers and elderly rose bushes were for decades a wellspring. We visit with art historian Janine Burke, who's been thinking and writing about the idea of the source of creativity. I think it's very much about loss in many cases, often with unconscious wellsprings of, of very deep and powerful emotions. And I think childhood reconnects us with that. You know, the, the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard said, childhood is stronger than reality. We go back to childhood, often mining emotions that we can't really articulate in a way. The imagination itself is, is a place to return to and a place to continually excavate and try and understand. And I think for artists, the understanding will be represented in images. And those images, the most profound, would be original images, the ones that are the deepest. And they will often be mysterious and enigmatic and perhaps painful as well. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, 
when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness. My father had a great love of this garden himself and, and spent a lot of time looking after the garden and he had a, a love of photography which he got from his own father. My grandfather was a photographer and I think he captured images with his camera. There was something in seeing him do that and seeing the care and precision. You know, it wasn't a matter of just a quick snapshot. He would set up beautiful shots and and then we would see all his 35 millimeter transparencies that would be projected on the wall of the big lounge there. We'd all sit there in the dark and look at the images. I think that that idea of image making comes from that, from that time for me. That was what was beautiful. And I, I loved that projected image of light, yeah. And the richness in that. I don't know. It was such a brief time because he died when I was nine. So they're early childhood memories. They're a real treasure to me. Perhaps it's, it's that treasure that I'm seeking. That's what I can't get back. But I want back. Gamboge, a yellow gum from Thailand, gives a bright, transparent, golden yellow for glazing or watercolour. It is not a true pigment. Perhaps the childhood garden represents the first time we sense the metaphysical. Our articulated relationships are with family and friends, but a whole other powerful set of relationships develop which are impossible to put into words. A connection with the rocks and the trees and the landscape curved around us. Well, I think what happens with that is that you actually identify with it, that it is you. And later in life, you have a new experience of I am that through a different path. So you actually have that knowledge in your innocence and you believe that you are part of everything around you. And in a way, you're trying to get back to that state or that understanding, but you have to go through this incredibly torturous experience life <laughs> to, to actually get to get back the only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre of pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire i think after the 2009 bushfires I started to feel so attached to this place. I became aware of how precious this landscape is. I had been wanting to paint this place and I'd even tried, I'd painted some landscapes that just didn't touch it. It wasn't landscape painting I needed to do, I needed to paint the flowers and so I had just finished a big exhibition of roses and camellias and exotic flowers and I thought, 
I've got to take a closer look at the native flowers here. And so I started looking, and every day I would walk by the river and be delighted to look at these tiny little flowers coming out, hold them up close to look at them because they were so different from, you know, the other flowers I'd painted before, and I started to want to paint them, yeah. And it's living here, it's being in the place and actually needing to paint your connection with the place. And I haven't really, honestly, had that more intimate experience with the bush until I came here, whereas I live with it now. And it has a relevance to me now as a, a vehicle for expression. And I think it's so important that we look after it. Carbon black, made by burning wood or charring. Bone white, made by burning bones using the white ash. Tuesday, September the 8th. Well, I did finish the last bits on the blue Leshenaltia, and yesterday I picked it up from being stretched, and it does look whole. I know that. So it's finished. In the struggle to make an image work, your ego gets annihilated and then there's still something that makes me keep pressing on. And now I'm in kind of a, a frenzy and I've got such a lot of paintings to do. And here's a new image that I've, I'm working on, Lafsio Sapalum. And these are such lovely little flowers, but they look such a mess when they're growing. They're just all over the place and I'm going to make a painting of them. I think it's going to have to be like the Blue Leshenaltia in that I'm going to have to start with the flow for this um, charcoal on paper. So here we go.